It's good to be together today. Good morning. Mike, I was crying, so I cried in your place today. Thank you. Walking carefully, walking gratefully. I want you to take a look at your Bibles as as, uh, Angie was reading today, as we look into God's Word. Look at the first verse in the English Standard Version, ESV, it says, and he said to all his disciples. If you look at chapter 16, verse 1, what does it say? He also said to his disciples. So we know that Jesus is speaking to crowds. He's speaking to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, but he's especially speaking to his followers in these passages. And he wants us to pay attention to ourselves. That's one of the words or phrases Jesus has used in this passage. Walking carefully as a follower of Jesus, walking gratefully. Luke wrote his gospel. God had Luke write his gospel. There's four of them, but he had Luke write because Luke has a special emphasis. He wanted to assure his readers to all those who heard him, especially his friend Theophilus, that what they had heard about Jesus was true, that they could believe it, they could have confidence in it, that Jesus is the Son of God. Know him, follow him with all your heart. Count the cost and know that the rewards of following him in faith, no matter where he leads you, no matter where he takes you in your life, it's worth it. In Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through, we're going to look through verse 19 today. There's four short lessons we're going to look at, and, and one longer one, a fifth lesson about being grateful. Many of you know the story about the, the ten lepers who were healed and only one came back. We're going to be looking at that today as well. So Jesus is addressing some very important aspects, key aspects of a disciple's maturing, growing relationship with him. Is my faith in Jesus growing? Is my trust in him growing? Are my attitudes changing, maturing? Are my actions and attitudes beginning to match more and more Jesus's? Am I in tune with his will? Am I paying attention to myself? Am I paying attention to my walk with my God who's near, who came to save us and walk with us? So let's pay attention to ourselves. That's kind of our theme today or our catchphrase. Pay attention to yourselves about a warning about temptations. Look at the first three verses in chapter 17. And Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Temptation to sin is always going to be a sure thing. You faced them this week. The Greek word there, scandala. You can kind of maybe guess what word comes from that. A scandal. I love what uh, Leon Moore says, temptations. They're like bait in a trap, and they trigger trouble. (laughs) 
there it is. If you're a fish, it's that worm or that smaller fish that catches your attention and you want to get it. There's lots of temptations. Woe to the one through whom temptations come. That word woe is a really, really, really strong word in the Greek text. So it's like Jesus doesn't say what the woe is, but the idea is it's not good for the one who leads others into temptation. Better to die here and now a horrible death of drowning than to lead other people towards sin. Better to die before you do that. Who are the little ones? Well, Jesus isn't specific. It's possible it could be children. It could be young believers. It could be disciples, no matter how young and old they are, no matter how old they are, followers, young or old. But here's the point. It's easy to get. Pay attention to yourself. That's a present active indicative. What does that mean? It just means be constantly alert. Be watching yourselves. Don't have anything to do with sinful behavior or leading other people to it. And that leads right to the second lesson here. Confronting sin and giving forgiveness. Look at the second part of verse 3. If your brother... Can I add a word here just to make, or sister? If a brother or sister sins, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. And if they sin against you seven times in the day, and, it turns to, and they turn to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive them. <laughs> wow. Jesus is followers don't tempt other people to sin. They confront sin. They do the opposite. They oppose sin. They correct sin. We need to pause there. What Jesus isn't saying is that we need sin police. Be careful you don't go around pointing out everybody's sins, like being self-righteous. Oh, look at what you did right in their face. That's not the idea here because it's in the context of giving for forgiveness. Be compassionate while being firm, being strong to oppose sin, but yet being compassionate. Why? Because remember, sin leads to what? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So instead of leading, letting people move toward sin and death, we want to rescue them and pull them back because God's salvation gives what? Life, eternal life, life that does not end. So we confront sin, not to hurt or not to put people down, but to steer them, to lead them to life. Watch your hearts. Are you letting people lead you into sin? Are you being tempted by sin? Are you leading other people there? Or are you letting it, them go that way without confronting them, without opposing it, without stopping them and at least questioning them? Not because you want to point out their sin and make fun of them or put them down, but because you want to raise them up to life. You see, Jesus' disciples, we are to be a community of people that's chasing after righteousness. Godliness, not unrighteousness.
So sin needs to be stopped, rebuked. But it's to be done in relationship, where there's a loving relationship, a healthy relationship, like it, what we picture a healthy family is that confronts sins. There's an accountability that, that's there, but there's gentleness and correction done in love, even maybe sometimes tough love, but done in love for someone's good. And when someone repents, it says here, we're to forgive them. Forgiveness among God's people, it's what's to characterize us. Confronting sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us one another. We kind of point out our faults. We correct one another in gentleness and love. But forgiveness is a central part of what is to characterize the people of God. Christians, modern term, evangelical Christians, what's to characterize us is forgiveness of sins when people turn away from sin or asking for help. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, the Lord's Prayer. We must allow forgiveness and reconciliation to happen. There's a, a neat picture of this in the, in the letter that Paul wrote to the, the first Corinthians. In first Corinthians chapter two, there was a brother, a believer, who was living in sin. He was sleeping with his father's wife. And the Corinthians were okay with it. And Paul confronts that, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? They were celebrating. Instead of mourning this situation, instead of being sad about what was going on, let him who has done this be removed from among you. A little bit later on, verse 11, but now I'm writing to you as not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother who says he's a Christian, a believer, if he's guilty of sexual immorality, and the list goes on, or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what I have to do, I'm not judging outsiders, is not that, that's not, what, it's inside the church, excuse me, whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil piece of person from among you. So there's the confronting of sin. Put this person out to help them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, listen to what happened. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has not caused it to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he will be overwhelmed by excess sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. We believe that's the same person. He was cast out, but now they weren't letting him back in. He was asking for forgiveness, and they said, no, you're too bad. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't say that to us? You're too bad for my forgiveness? That's not the way it works in God's people. When someone repents, we are to forgive them. Paul says, so that we're not, why do we need to do this? So we're not outwitted by the devil. 
because he loves to divide us. He loves us to give up hope. How do you not get outwitted by the devil? I didn't put it in my notes, and I'm sorry I didn't. I thought of it later, Saturday. <laughs> that was yesterday. But Ephesians chapter 6 gives us hope there. In chapter 6, Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, Paul's talking about the armor of God that will defend ourselves against the wiles of the devil. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be strong in the Lord, it says in verses 6, excuse me, chapter 6, Ephesians 6, 10 through 11. We're supposed to put on the shield of faith. We need Christ, the helmet of salvation. We need his help and his salvation. We need the word of God to protect our hearts so we know what to do. We need to pray. That's some of the armor we need to put on. God helps us to resist sin and to forgive. If we have to forgive somebody, how many times do you have to forgive? Well, Jesus says seven times, but we know that's just a number to make the point. Seven times in one day. How's that working out for you, married couples? Wow, what a challenge. Seven times a day. How many times has God in Christ forgiven me for the same sin? I can't even begin to count. If he sins, if that person sins against you. So here's this accountability in a relationship. And maturing faith says, or pursues, rather than avoids that other person that you've been hurt by, to get things reconciled. We move toward them. Matthew 18 tells us that if someone sins against us, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go to them in private. And if they don't, if you don't get reconciled one-on-one, -on -one, then you bring a couple other people with you to talk it through, to get things sorted out. And if that doesn't work, you bring it all before the whole congregation. Boy, that would be embarrassing. And if that doesn't work, then you move away from them for a while until they come to their senses. Sometimes we need help to bring reconciliation. Sometimes somebody needs to talk to me about ask forgiving, or if I've hurt someone telling me, you know, you offended them, you ought to go talk to them, you need help. Sometimes a person refuses, sometimes they need some more space, but it's to be done for the spiritual well-being of you, them, and the whole body of Christ. It's a delicate matter that has to be done in love and with much prayer. Forgiving others who have sinned against us many times is extremely challenging, and the disciples knew that too. It's true in your life, isn't it? You'll forgive me a couple times, but third time, fourth time? Can you imagine in the same day? Like Jesus kind of exaggerates to make his point, I believe. Pay attention to yourselves. Use the faith you have to follow and trust God. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> and the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So the disciples are saying, generous forgiveness is hard. Give us more faith. 
We need more faith to do that, increase our faith. Generous forgiveness described here by Jesus needs a big amount of faith. Faith is central to our lives with Christ. <laughs> We're saved by faith. We're given eternal life and forgiveness when we believe that Jesus is the Savior, the one who died for our sins. We walk by faith in our day-to-day. -day. We have to be trusting that God cares for us and keeps us until we see him face-to-face. -face. But I tell you what, Jesus says here that you don't need more faith. You just need genuine faith. He turns our thinking away from less or more to just genuine faith. Is faith there? Mustard seed, proverbial illustration of tiny. A tiny faith can uproot a mulberry tree, which we believe is some, a tree that's like really deeply rooted. A big tree that has deep roots. You don't dig that up and throw it into the sea very easily, but that's all that you need is real faith to do great things that align with God's will. Just the faith of a little seed. How can I forgive seven times in the same day for the same offense? She did it again. He's out of control again. We don't need a coconut. We just need a mustard seed-sized faith. We only need genuine faith, and it can be small, but it's faith in God through Christ. It's not how much faith I have, but faith in the great God that makes what seems impossible possible for us to do when we look to him and believe in him. When you pray according to God's will, some of you have been sinned against in heart-wrenching ways. Broken wedding vows, physical abuse, sexual abuse, you've been lied to, you've been swindled, you've been taken advantage of repeatedly by someone you trusted, a trusted friend, a family member. How do you forgive that? And what if they repent? That's so hard. But is God able to change them? Is God able to change you? Do you believe in a great God? Small, genuine faith asks God to do in us what we can't do by ourselves. Faith enables us enables you and me to endure rejection because we're trusting in God. Faith in God allows us to be patient, helps us to be patient, to wait on God when the way's not clear, we don't know what to do. We trust him that he'll show us a way. Faith in God helps me to believe that through the tough situations I'm living in right now, that he's aware of them and he's going to lead me as I lean on him. He's going to honor his name 
and how he's working, it's ultimately going to be for my good. Faith helps me believe that his grace holds on to me, even when I'm going astray and I need to come to him again and again and say, I messed up again. Lord, I really want to be changed. Help me. He will forgive if it's honest. He knows our heart. Faith opens my eyes to see that it's my bad choices that have got me to this place and I need help to change. Lord, give me faith to believe you and to follow you and to trust my life to you. Help me to get my eyes off this world and to put my eyes on heavenly treasures. That's faith, little faith. It enables us to do that because we're trusting in a God who never ends, who is never weak or tired. Use the faith you have. Expect God to do impossible things when you ask him to do his will. Are you aware, or do you remember the prophet Elijah? Elijah. He prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. He prayed again, and it did rain. How did that happen? Is it because he had great faith? Or he just had enough faith to believe that God would do what God wanted to do, what God said he would do if Israel was worshiping idols, that he would stop the rain, that he would bring famine. Elijah just prayed the will of God to be done so that people would turn to the true God and away from Baal. It was used, the famine was used to lead thousands of people back to God. So pay attention to yourselves. Don't lead others astray towards sin. Instead, be gentle, gentle and firmly confront sin in your own life and their life. Forgive others when they, they ask you for forgiveness. And use the faith you have to do the will of God. It doesn't have to be big. It just has to be genuine. Strengthen your faith by reading the word of God. Fourthly, serve in humility. Look at verse 7. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded so that you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's a weird parable, isn't it? A little challenging. Serve God in humility. Those with genuine faith don't get proud. And Jesus illustrates being humble by this story of a, or parable of a servant. A servant's duty is to his master first. It's not the other way around. God's not my servant. I'm his servant. I was created to serve him and to glorify him. I can't come up to God and say, I did my job. I deserve a reward. Give me what I want. I want a bonus on top of that. That's not how it works. Just a few chapters earlier in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said a different parable. 
In chapter 12, verse 35, he says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table. He will come and serve them. Two different pictures. It's like, here's the balance. God's the master, I'm the servant. And yet we know that the master, the great God, the creator of all, has done what? He's come and become a servant to us, to people like you and me. That's amazing. Jesus is gracious. He's not a mean master. <laughs> He's an amazing master. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. So Jesus' disciples are to serve God and others in humility. We're saved to be servants who do our duty. <laughs> We're saved by the work and grace of God that changes us to serve others the way God serves us. We serve humbly. We realize we're undeserving of anything. We don't earn God's favor or salvation or eternal life. He gives it to us and we humbly give thanks and serve him. It's our duty. It's what he made us for. But it's not a hard task. The devil, he's a bad master. Our God is a gentle and humble serving master. Pay attention to yourselves. Have gratitude for God's grace. We didn't read it earlier, and I'll take a few moments. Let's just read to, through verse 19 in Luke chapter 17. A true event. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus is going toward the cross, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. It's interesting that Jesus just talked about a master-servant relationship and a special word for masters mentioned in this next event. I think Luke wanted to draw our attention to who Jesus is. Whom he saw... When he saw them, he said to them, to these ten lepers, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And they went, and they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Gratitude for God's grace. This event reminds us of several important things. First of all, who's Jesus? He's God. He's master. He's creator. And why did he come? Well, he came to rescue, to deliver the oppressed, to save sinners, He's accomplishing his mission. He's healing ten lepers. They cry out to him for mercy. They cry for mercy from the proper distance. 
Jesus says, what do you want? They want to be healed. That's obvious. He doesn't touch them. He just says, go show yourself to the priest. They had to believe. They had to trust. The law demanded that if you were a leper, the priest had to okay that you were cleansed, that you were clear of your leprosy. So as they turned and obeyed the master's voice, they got cleansed. <laughs> that must have been an amazing event. As they're on their way, they get cleansed. They obeyed. Their faith is revealed by their obedience. They believed that Jesus could heal them, and they all were cleansed, Jew and Gentiles. It's kind of interesting. Jews and Gentiles didn't get along, but here in their misery, they're having life together, and they're sharing in the joy of being cleansed together. But only the Samaritan, this foreigner, which is a word used by, in the scriptures a lot of times, as an unbeliever or a pagan or a heathen, someone who doesn't have, who seems to be far away from God, he's the only one that comes back and says thank you, that's grateful. Ten lepers were delivered from their sickness, but one received more. Verse 19 Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Won't, I love what Daryl Block says. Only one man learned everything the miracle can teach him. Here's where faith and salvation merged. Ten lepers were cleansed. But I believe in this passage that only one man came into a relationship with the one who cleansed him. He got salvation. Did the others think they deserved Jesus' mercy because they were Jews? The pagan, the Samaritan was the furthest away from God in their minds, but he actually came close by faith. He came near into an alive and living relationship with his God. And that just brings us to this. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to the churches. So he's speaking to people who claim to be followers of Christ. And here's what he says in Revelation chapter 3. I'll get there in a second. You're familiar with these verses, I'm sure. In verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on a throne as I've also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's an invitation, not to just be healed physically, but to know God in an intimate relationship, to sit down and have a meal face to face with the one who rescues. 
to be grateful for the mercy and this loving relationship that Jesus came to provide us, to believe and receive his forgiveness, to walk near him, to follow him, to grow in love and closeness with God. That's an amazing truth. So here are five important lessons for us this morning to make sure, and Jesus wanted to make sure his disciples heard this. Pay attention to yourselves. Don't lead others towards sin, but oppose sin. Be careful. Take care of one another. Confront sin. And when someone asks for forgiveness, when they want to repent, help them. Chase after righteousness together. Forgive people when they seek it. Forgive as God forgave you. Have faith. You believe in a mighty God. Ask him to do his will. Dare to ask him to do his will and see if he won't do it. Believe that he will. Serve God in humility. We're unworthy servants. And come into a relationship with the living God the way this one leper did in gratitude. Would you pray with me? Lord God, help us. Open our eyes to see. Help us not to fall into sin or lead others there, but to turn away from it, to stand firm by your might and your power and your grace, the help you give us. Spirit of God, I ask you that you would help us to know your will, to be wise, to know what your will is, so that we pray you and ask you to do what you, what you desire to do through your people, through your servants, the ones you came to save and to change into a holy people. Lord God, make us those people. Give us a spirit of humility. Give us a spirit of awe. Lord, lead us to your table so that we eat and learn of you. We ask you to do these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.